baby, I am on my second cup of coffee today and we are riding on the most extreme caffeine high of my life. So I'm excited to do this episode. It's probably going to be super high energy. But anyways, this is Amy Tom and you're listening to the Hacker Noon podcast. I am talking today to Ben Milne, who's the founder and chairman of Dwala, and Jordan Husney, who is the co-founder of Parable. Welcome, everybody. And so I would like to start with Ben. Can you tell me more about you and your role and what your company is? Yeah, I'm Ben. I'm a founder, uh, chairman, previous CEO, previous VP of blank. I feel like um, worn a lot of hats at Dwala over the years. Dwala is a programmable payment platform that essentially enables developers to program U.S. dollars. And uh, that's something that I feel like ushered in the Bitcoin uh, and Ether worlds or by the Bitcoin and Ether worlds. But frankly, a lot of the commerce still uses U.S. dollars and that's what the company's focused on and enables um, developers to embed a modern payments platform to do just that. Mm-hmm. OK, wait, when did you start the company? So the company was started the first time in 2008, took me a couple of years to figure out the regulatory complexities, launched it in 2010 as a consumer product. We built it into a company that serviced like a million or a million people moving a billion dollars a year and decided wasn't that great of a company. So we shut it down. We relaunched it about five or six years ago from a cold start with a developer first focused. And that's turned out to work really well, not only for the company, but I think also for the development community. There are a number of developers, hundreds, thousands of developers that have built some really impressive innovations on it. That company is not that old now. And as I mentioned before, I'm not the CEO anymore. I onboarded my CEO replacement last year. Now I have the mm-hmm. opportunity to participate in a very different way. Mm-hmm. Okay, exciting. Jordan, who are you? <laughs> I'm Jordan Husney. I'm the founder and for as long as people will follow the CEO of Parable, which is the Internet's number one agile meeting platform. Okay, and when did that start? We started in 2015, but it was a slow roll until folks started to believe. And what I mean by folks is the financial end of the market started to believe that remote work was going to be a thing worth paying attention to. And mm-hmm. then things started to grow very quick toward the end of 2018, I would say. Yeah. And especially in 2020, I would imagine. <laughs> 2020 was what not much sleep happened in 2020. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> cool. So what I want to learn from you guys is how you got to where you are today. So can we start at the very beginning? What was your very first job ever? <laughs> I think the only actual job I've ever had is I was an intern at an advertising agency once in, once in high school. I started my first company in high school. I've been building companies wow. my whole life. I, I build companies. I only took a, I don't know, maybe a couple months to realize that selling time for doing deliveries was not maybe what I was built. So I've been really lucky. I was always surrounded by people that supported building companies. My first one was not venture funded. It was self-funded. I had the opportunity to do that. And that was a lot of fun. Dwala has been a heck of a ride and there's another 10, 20 years left of that story. And Mm -hmm. so it's very different, but I think my first job was probably sounds cliche, but like lawn mowing or building websites. Oh, when do you think you built your first website? 
probably elementary or middle school, I think is when I started like selling them. Cause you mm-hmm. can sell websites to people. Oh, like, wow. I don't know if this is, this is like dad pants. I'm going to date myself. Anybody yeah. else here use like V Bolton? Nope. You're like, yeah, you're going to date yourself. We don't even know what that is. <laughs> no, I don't even know uh, what that is. <laughs> so you can sell uh, web services or development services or like HTML templates on V Bolton boards. And no one knew how old you were. And PayPal back then was not doing like age verification checks. So you were like, like 13 making people's websites. Yeah. No one cared. Like you didn't need Sweet. Bitcoin. Just PayPal didn't. Yeah have the same requirements. It was much easier okay. back then. Cool. All right. And what was the, what would you say the first official company was that you founded? It was probably, I don't even remember what I called it. I was drop shipping speakers when I was in high school. I sold in journalism class. I would go to the library and sell speakers to people on internet forums. And eventually what? I got enough money that I could found like my own brand line. That was my first, oh, I'm going to do this for a living thing uh, and not leave journalism class. But like that was where my official education ended, but where different educations started. Mm, and Jordan, okay. what was your experience? You start building companies because you felt like you had an internal mandate to do. I, that's a really good question. I had a similar thing, I think, to you. I, I know that I, I really wanted to be independent, but I didn't know what that meant. And mm-hmm. my first job, just because I think I saw other kids that were older than me doing it, was bagging groceries. But I didn't. I did not like punching the clock and I, to date myself, I I think we're probably of similar age. I started a thing called a bulletin board system where you dial in with a modem and it would screech and you would basically play text games with each over modems. This is pre-internet and Windows 95 was coming out. So it was basically 1995 and people needed more memory to install it. And so the first thing that I was doing was driving all over the Minneapolis, St. Paul area where I'm from through like friend and family referrals. I would upgrade people's computers for them so they could install the newest version of windows. And I I started a company, an S corp called chips, which was computer help installation and personal service. And that was like the first thing that I did. I had business cards and everything. Wow. Okay. Do you remember how much you charged people to upgrade their memory? I think it was like a hundred bucks and then parts obviously were on top of that, but it was, I remember it was like flat fee and it was, Mm -hmm. it was, I felt like it was just robbery. Like I'd be in and out. It would be so fast. I was curious to ask Ben, um, did your parents encourage this path? Were they modeling for you being Mm self-employed or, or or you responding? What pressure created to, was it intrinsic like, I got to do this for myself? Or how did you get on that path? I think I grew up in the country. So there are only so many options for how to earn income. You can basically clean up people's yards. You can mow people's yards. You can do other manual labor. But those things only work when the sun is up. Or you need a car so someone has to drive you into town to do work. It's amazing how like all these things go to, how do I make money on the internet? Because my parents will not buy me things that I want. And I am a teenager and I would like to have other things. And I think all those things just coming together, I was really fortunate that my parents subsidized an early internet connection. And even I was like hearing myself talk, I'm like, I don't even think back then we could use PayPal. I think I was like bartering services for like trade. Like you mail me stuff <laughs> for the, the thing I do. Cause I was trying to think, cause I don't think in the early days, PayPal was even there yet. It was, yeah. I'll build this thing or I'll do this service, but you're going to ship me this good. 
And the reason you do that is so I didn't leave you bad feedback on the forum. Dude, the internet is so much easier now. It's, yeah. it's so much easier. Ooh, startups rejoice. Say goodbye to your banking fees because, honey, with the Brex, your money stays your money. There are no account fees or transaction fees or any kind of hidden fees at all. So I'm going to put the link in the show notes of the episode. Go check it out. That's Brex. Back to the episode. Bye. Interesting. But how did you know even that entrepreneurship was an option? Because I feel like for me growing up, it just it wasn't ever presented to me as an option until I was maybe in my like later teens when I started to realize, oh, yeah, I could be an entrepreneur. So how did you know that it was a possibility for you? Jordan, you want to take that one? I my dad was strongly entrepreneurial, still is mm. strongly entrepreneurial, where if I was really tired in the morning, bagging groceries, because I used to work the 5.30 a.m. shift on the weekends, which really sucked. Um, and if I was really tired, he'd be like, yeah, so how's that going for you? And then he's like, there's another way you can be your own boss. And, mm. and he was very encouraging of that. And I had this other strange experience where or set of circumstances that were influential for me where when I was 16 years old, I did a science fair project for high school, just like homework. But then it took off and I went to the International Science and Engineering Fair representing our country in computer science. And I got a little bit of media recognition in my local area and I got a, an internship offer at a local technology company and started working there uh, and stayed there from when I was 16 until basically until I was like 30. So a pretty long mm. time. And I was working for somebody else. And when I talked to my dad over dinner about just like corporate crap that would happen, he'd be like, see, that's why I can't work for anyone else. And so that narrative was always mm. in there. And I was like, okay, eventually I'm going to do something on my own. Uh, I want to, dad, I want to know what you're talking about. <laughs> I hmm. think it's where it's coming from. Interesting. Did either of you do post-secondary education? Good question. I went to the University of Minnesota for eight years and never finished my degree. Hmm. Okay. No, my primary education is company one. Yeah. My secondary education was company two. <laughs> and I feel like in many cases, I'm still in that. I, I just went a very different, very different route. I feel yeah. like when you're talking about the the bagging groceries, I applied for that job and they wouldn't hire me. So maybe the universe like just mm. gave me a nudge in the other direction because eventually I did decide, hey, I'll go do something a little bit more uh, traditional. I applied there and the fleet farm is. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's almost like entrepreneurship in many ways. It's almost like a, it's a last resort in some ways. But my dad, maybe somewhat similarly, probably slightly different story though. He's a total looney tune. He did stuff like He'd wake up and decide he wanted like a two hole golf course in the backyard. So he'd get on a tractor and make a little golf course and then he'd play golf on it for a week. Or maybe he wanted to build a snowboard jump. So he just started building things. And there was never really major restrictions on it, except can you afford to do that? And is that safe? And so I grew up in this environment where you can build whatever you want, as long as physically and intellectually you are able to do it. And money in a lot of ways was the restriction. And to his credit, he created an environment where experimentation was really okay and encouraged. And I don't think they probably regretted that. And they being my parents until I told them I wasn't going to go to college and I was going to build a speaker company because I liked me. That didn't go so hot, but like <laughs> we're past that now. Everybody's good. 
We're all good. Okay. Actually, that's really interesting because I think I am not a founder yet, but I will be there one day, I think. And like I said, I didn't even picture myself as an entrepreneur as a like a path that I could be on until I had already passed a second a secondary school after I graduated high school and went on to post-secondary then I started to meet new people and realize that oh yeah entrepreneurship is a path and I was in business school so yeah but I think that maybe that has to do with how I grew up because my parents are both lifers. They're both company lifers. They've been, my dad worked at the company for over 25 years, one company all his life. Then my mom did two 10 year plus stints. So I was raised by people who are very like stable in their career and very much lifers. And I am all over the place, but I did not come to that as an example, what could be. So I think it's really interesting that you have those back, that background where your parents were wild or they had an entrepreneur background and they helped you to realize your potential. So that's cool. Cool. So can you tell me, Jordan, about how Parable got started? Yeah. So it, the genesis of Parable began in, I think, 2013 or 2012 when I was with the same company for a very long time with a short stint where I left them for a little bit to join a a startup in Palo Alto. And I like woke up and had a a David Byrne talking heads moment. I don't don't know if you've heard the song where it's, this is not my beautiful house. This is not my beautiful wife. I felt like I was living somebody else's life, even though I had spent Mm. 20 years of my own. And I was just in Minneapolis and I was like, I love Minneapolis, but I was like, is this what I want to do? Or do I want to experience something else? And I was listening to a a podcast and show that's still on the air called radio lab. And there was this underwriting segment that said, uh, undercurrent, a strategy firm in lower Manhattan, thinking a lot about human refrigerator interaction, 3d printing and cat memes for this and other thoughts, please visit undercurrent.com. And I did. And it was like the smartest writing on the intersection of technology and management and the world that I had ever read. And I was like, I want a job there. I don't know what these people do, but I want to hang out with those people and be there. And so I cold wrote them an email and I got a job and they're like, Hey, we do corporate consulting. We advise on strategy. We advise on, on corporate structure. And we're looking for somebody to take over our account with GE. And you'll be working with the chairman and the vice chair and all the C-levels of GE on contemplating their future. And I'm like, that sounds weird. And I was super naive. I don't even know what that means, but I'm like, yeah, I'd like that job. And like TLDR, I got the job and it's 2013. And I'm with my client, this woman named Beth Comstock, and I'm in Fairfield, Connecticut, the headquarters. And she probably doesn't remember this, but everyone was late. There was like a snowstorm and everyone was late and everyone's schedule got screwed up. And we had 10 minutes to do what we needed an hour plus to do. And she was like, look at this schedule of mine. And it was just constant WebEx meetings, but she had driven into Connecticut like I did from New York city. And then I had this epiphany where I'm like, Oh shit. If you're an executive in a global company, you're a remote worker and you don't know it. And I just started thinking of everybody that I knew. And I'm like, Oh, you're either on airplanes all the time or you're doing video conferencing all the time. And 
I'm like, oh, this is just the way that knowledge work is going to go. And then I couldn't stop. I was like super obsessed about that. Mm. And I'm like, what will the future of collaboration look like when all knowledge workers are remote and we're hiring from the global market, not the local market? And then I saw the thing I couldn't see and I was doomed. (laughs) Interesting. Then my hand was forced. And like the short story is Undercurrent got bought by a company that then abruptly went bankrupt. And we couldn't buy our, we had the cash, but we couldn't buy ourselves out of the bankruptcy for stupid technical reasons. Uh-huh. And so I was given this like red pill, blue pill choice, restart a version of undercurrent with the same people. Cause the nice thing about consulting is there's nothing to take with you, but your mind yeah. or start this thing that I couldn't unsee. And that's how parable was started. Interesting. Okay. Can we go down a brief tangent here? What do you think the future of remote work would have been if COVID didn't happen? Oh, that's a really good question. I think that I think that COVID, the risk to the remote work market is we're going to see thrashing now where if you, and we're, we're seeing this just in the general chatter of human beings, but we're now seeing people that are like, I will only work in offices forever because this remote work thing was really terrible for me. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that those folks keep in mind that what we did wasn't really the remote work experience that you could have because we were in lockdown, which is not the same as remote work. Um, And then there are people that are like, I'm never going back. You like, I don't care how much you pay me. I don't care how fancy the office facilities are. I'm not going back. And I think what we're going to see is because COVID bred extremism in every possible way, we're going to see this oscillation now Mm -hmm. in the marketplace about what attitudes toward remote work are. If COVID hadn't happened, I think it would have been more gradual and more moderate. And from our own company's standpoint, we were like finance such as we can take our time and figure out this. Oh shit. (laughs) Everyone needs this. Now everyone's hip to the inevitability of Mm -hmm. remote work because it's here. And so now we have to hustle in a way that we haven't Mm -hmm. had to hustle. And so you've experienced like massive growth over the past year. Yeah. Yeah. Our metrics are transparent. So Mm -hmm. if you go to parable.co slash blog every week, we show what adoption looks like. And when lockdown happened in March, like all of our metrics just turned straight. Nice. Okay, cool. That makes sense. And Ben, how did you start Walla? How did it come to be? I just pissed off. There's... I feel like when I got started talking to people at Dwala, all I did was talk, basically travel around on planes and talk to people for two years about how angry I was about credit card fees. For me, intellectual curiosity has always been a little bit like gravity. It's like the thing, no matter, it doesn't matter how much I fight it, I will eventually lose to it. And for me, that particular quandary was the thing that led me into payments in the first place. Just trying to understand why is it so expensive to put the bits in between other places that track bits. It's just not how, how databases work. Over time, I discovered more about the why. But the reason I started the company is because in my first company, or my first real company that I relied on and fed me, all of our money came in through credit cards, came in through online and all the options were different variations of a slightly better API or a slightly different UI or a different merchant account. And in many ways today, that's still what e-commerce merchants have. And there wasn't really an option for if, okay, we were starting over from line one, how would we make the system more usable? And the system itself was built in like the seventies and is not well documented, is actually quite difficult to use. As I mentioned, it took me two years to figure out and get it into market and to do that, I literally signed my entire life 
all the money in my bank accounts, my house, everything I owned over to the bank as collateral to get access to the system to drop off unencrypted batch files. And to think about where we've come, which is a developer can now build something like that in far more complex and provocative Adwala in literally two days if you know how to write to an API. That took me years, mm. but I was angry enough to do it because I felt like there just has to be a better way. And yeah, I thought it was like a five-year problem. And maybe five years ago, I was saying like, maybe it's a 10-year problem. And now I'm realizing, oh, it's probably like a 20 to 30-year type problem. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, when you start companies, you don't always know. But for me, that was the impetus. Was your rage okay. sufficient? Where if I'm if still here, knew, yes, your rage is no sufficient one's ever asked. You was your rage there. sufficient? It was your rage <laughs> sufficient. That's was one of your, my favorite questions. Was your rage sufficient, such that if you put yourself hypothetically back in your shoes and you knew that it was going to be a twenty or thirty year mission, do you think that you would have done that mission again? Maybe I don't know. I definitely. I think about things in an introspective way quite frequently, but I don't think about things in the context of the past of how I would behave differently. I think about them in the context of now and what does that change about how I think about things. The thing that I now understand about helping founders grow is that if I can find founders that are approaching a problem, but there's some narrative violation to the way that they're approaching the problem, and if they're right, the likelihood of them having outsized impact, even if their business model is not perfectly dialed in, is really meaningful. And so I find myself in retrospect seeking out a lot of those types of founders to try and help or invest in, but more often just try and help them onto their next step and encourage them to make decisions in five-year windows of, can I commit to this in five years? Because if I can do that halfway through, I might be able to commit to it for another five or another 10 or another 20, but three years is too short. And seven years is just feels too long. So anecdotally, five years just has felt like the right framework. Mm -hmm. Ben, I'd like to ask you about the process of stepping down as the CEO. And I'm wondering why you did that, what went through your head at the time and what the process was like. Stepping down as CEO is the same feeling as hiring your first engineering leader. If you're an engineer and you're hiring your first engineering leader, you're replacing yourself as VP of engineering or head of engineering or whatever your appropriate vernacular for your company size is. But like founding companies is a state of mind. Amy, you're clearly already operating in a founder state of mind. The question is just which order will you take position on the cap table? You're already behaving like a founder. You have your own brand in the way that you're presenting yourself and the way that you're, you're talking about what you do and who you like talking to. So like intellectually, you're already there. The question is just at what point do you just like go it alone? And so I just think that like that founding companies is an intellectually honest process of continually replacing yourself. Mm-hmm. And most technical founders start to do that with engineers, ideally on day one, because they'll ideally find someone who is significantly better than them at the most high leverage thing in the company. And as companies grow, specifically around like 80 to 100 people, 120, to me, it feels like that's where the CEO role really starts to be one of the highest leverage. And you can probably tell by looking at me, I love technology and I love building companies and solving problems. But at some point, you got to look at every single role you have and think, is now the right time to replace myself? Mm-hmm. Company finally has enough revenue. It was time. Company finally has a long enough runway that is far different than the one that I thought about originally, but it was time. So I know it's a long-winded way of saying it is literally the same as hiring like the first engineering leader. You're just 
you're upgrading the company by being intellectually honest that there might be somebody who's better at that thing. You were just good at making it work for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. It's got to take a lot of humility, though, to be able to admit that uh, you want someone to replace you to better the company. People say that, but I actually I actually it's it's not that humble. Right. I'm an owner in the business. I want the business to have the best mm-hmm. leaders it can possibly have. And if I remove myself from how other people think I should feel about a title and I think about what's best for the business, it's actually pretty straightforward. Right. Mm-hmm. Why the world thinks that founders think their uh, companies are children to me is insane. They either have never started a company or they don't have any children. These are not the same thing. There's like a thing people say that they should stop saying forever because it's untrue. Companies are not children. Companies are projects and organic things that grow dissimilar to children. Okay. Sorry for the diatribe. Something happens to my kid. I will be crushed. Something happens to the company. We're going to work through it. And eventually, even if my contribution is under another title, that's cool. Hmm. But if somebody else says I'm not that kid's dad, I'm going to be really frustrated. Okay, I don't have children, so this makes sense of why all, I have all in time, in this Amy. Mindset. All in time. Okay, okay, okay. That's interesting. Wait, I had a question off of that, and now I forgot it. Oh no. Okay, can oh uh, okay, I know. So, I think that what you're saying is definitely a serial entrepreneur mindset, and I think that some people go into starting businesses that not having that serial entrepreneur mindset, where they don't intend to necessarily step down as CEO ever. Do you think that's true? I, yeah, I think Mm -hmm. there are people and Jordan, I'm sure you also met met very many that that will go to their grave with that if they can. Mm -hmm. And I, maybe in some ways that's healthy and in other ways it's not, I know that's not healthy for me. Mm -hmm. I think the company got better when that new engineering leader came in, the company got better when that new product leader came in, the company got better. I think when the new CEO came in and Mm -hmm. There's lots of times where the company got better because a new board member was added or a new CSM was added. Like these additions make the company stronger. And I don't mm-hmm. ever want to be the thing standing in the way of growth of the business or the people in it. That right. to me just seems wrong. Do you start a company with the intention of selling it eventually? I don't so know, Jordan, what are your thoughts? That question is tied deeply to the conversation mm-hmm. that we were having. And it, to me, it depends on all of these questions of when and how you give up roles, how mm-hmm. closely your ego is tied to the business, how parental you believe your role is to the business mm. is tied in many ways to how you as a person see putting points on the board. And I don't even like that metaphor much because I'm not much for sports metaphors, but there are people in the world who are seem to be purely motivated by seeing a monetary number increase. There's nothing else there. It's like, as long as the bank balance is going up, then they would say that they feel like they're doing a good job. There are other people who are like myself, who are mostly interested in building something that is robust and meaningful and leaves what I believe leaves the world in a condition that's better than when it started. And maybe that like I identify with Ben's earlier statement of I was just pissed off about paying credit card fees and seeing other people pay credit card fees. Like 
I started this business largely out of rage and anger as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's a purpose to that. And, and being able to align a bunch of interests because a business is it, a business is not like a solo musician's career. Mm-hmm. It is a team sport. And what you have to do is you have to get a, a diversity of people and a diversity of skills pointed in a direction that they're ready to, to go in and make the system robust to all of the crazy unanticipated shit and some anticipated shit that's going to happen. And to me, building something that can survive without me is one of the most fulfilling parts I took, I took a three week vacation recently and nothing broke and nothing made me happier than that. Freaked some of my investors out, but to me, that's what winning feels like. Mm -hmm. Cool. All right. That makes sense. Thank you for sharing that. I would like to know what your advice would be to future young entrepreneurs who are interested in starting a SaaS company. Ben, would you like to start? My advice has been really unchanged for a lot of years. Just shut up and build it. Just mm. go. Go. <laughs> Just start. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That, that's it. Just do it. Yeah. Yep. I my, my advice is largely the same. And the that's step one. And then step step two is don't quit. Mm-hmm. Unless for some reason you're really gonna do harm to yourself because it's I think the thing that most folks don't understand about entrepreneurship, partially because in our societies, let's call this, let's just carve out a piece of the world. We'll call it like the Americas for a minute, mm-hmm. piece of, pieces of Western Europe. We look at entrepreneurship in the same way that we look. It's a form of celebrity. And I, I think that people assume that it's amazing when you're doing this. It's not. It's just eating. Generally, it's eating one shit sandwich after another and just chewing on it and chewing on it and chewing on it. And so you have to find a way to get up and motivate yourself and ask yourself a very honest question. Like, <laughs> do I really enjoy these sandwiches? Is this what yeah. I want to be doing with How my life? How to make like the you shit really... sandwich enticing. <laughs> That's right. Every day in many ways for folks, it's hard. It's really hard. And granted, you have these like sublime moments of, of ecstasy when you overcome some sort of really difficult challenge, Mm. but the developing whatever is appropriate for you, be it therapy, be it mentorship, be it whatever to figure out what your motivations are and why you're doing it and get clear and dealing with the stress so that you can stay in and show up and be your best self is really the most important part. And I think that the grueling parts of this job are not often discussed. They're not often glorified It's all the other things. It's the exits and the jets and the round sizes or whatever your entrepreneurship journey is. It's often glorified. And that comes at the expense of not being able to stay in the game early when you recognize that it's actually a normal experience for it to be really awful when you're getting this thing off the ground. And the way the, the metaphor that I try and give entrepreneurs when they're first starting out is go to the supermarket where they haven't figured out single queuing. And it's just, everyone mm-hmm. has to pick the line that they think is going to be fast enough. And you just pick one and by odds, right? If there's 10 lines, you got a one in 10 chance. If you were to pick arbitrarily that the other nine are moving faster than yours. Entrepreneurship is just like that. If you're looking to make comparisons with everyone else, except that it's infinite lines in every single direction nowadays. So you have Mm -hmm. to figure out how to be motivated to show up knowing that you're probably going to be in the slowest line. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Forever. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Then my, 
Go Do you mind ahead, if I chime, on, chime in on that? Not, not as a negative at all. I think that there, I mean, some people are really built for this. And mm, mm-hmm. an, my personal observation is that being built for, I think, has a lot to do with internal reward systems. And for some people, internal reward systems is money. Yep. I talked to one recently that I said, why are you doing this? He said, I want to be a billionaire. And I was like, okay, I never got that answer directly before, but cool. Let's unpack that. Like it is what it is. But you ask another person, they say to the same question, like my answer would be, I get my reward system is what people build with the products that I participate in building. When somebody builds a cool new fractional ownership application using Dwala or build something that I can't even figure out how it works. That for me is the reward system. And I'm willing to go through a lot to get back to that reward system mm-hmm. because for me, it's intellectual gravity. It, I can't fight it. So just follow it. Um, Interesting. Okay. What I about the school of thought that you don't need to care that much about the cause that you're being an entrepreneur of Just start whatever. There are some. Mm-hmm. Like the the cool thing about humanity is for better or for worse, you'll always find one that will. And and I, I think that the thing that Ben said makes a lot of sense. I think there are many different ways of being built for entrepreneurship. Absent morality, like none of them really, I think, are going to be more successful than the others because that success is determined by that individual for what that means for them. Mm-hmm. But it's do the thing already and don't give up seem to be the two ingredients that are the most necessary in terms of your intrinsic ability to succeed. Then there's all the societal factors of like how networked are you and how do people perceive yeah. you when you show up in the room? And uh, But those yeah, yeah, yeah. of the things that mm-hmm. are about just your intrinsic skill, those two seem to be the most important. So my follow-up question then is, how do I know when I'm ready? If you say just go, how do I know I'm ready? Just do it. If you (laughs) haven't done it, you're not ready. When you do it, you're done. It's it's that easy. Oh, man. Beginning is very binary. Yeah. Uh, Totally agree. Completely agree. In my mind, it's a lot more complicated than that. You make it seem very simple. All right. It is until right. it's not. And then you're rolling downhill and then your own inertia just takes over. All right. I am excited. <laughs> Catch me in a few years. <laughs> well, we'll right. taps. Thank you very much, Jordan and Ben, for joining the podcast. Jordan, if we want to find you and what you're working on online, where can we look? You can go to parable.co. And in particular, if you want to see how a bunch of weirdos operate a fully transparent company, parable.co slash blog is your best place. Sweet. And Ben, where can we find you and what you're working on online? Stwala.com or search Ben Milne. You'll find me sooner and later. I bet sooner. Sweet. All right. Thank you very much, guys. If you like this episode of the Hacker Noon podcast, don't forget to do all the things like it, share it, subscribe to it, tell all your friends about it. I would love that. And also, this episode was produced by Hacker Noon, hosted by me, Amy Tom, edited by your lovely audio wizard, Alex. And you can find us on all these social channels at Hacker Noon. Stay weird, and I'll see you on the internet. Bye bye.
Afternoon Podcast.